Okay. Welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I am here with my dear friend, uh, Dr. Andre Marquis, professor up at the University of Rochester, uh, a deep brother in this journey of sense making and the world of psychotherapy, philosophy, especially integral. Um, I met Andre back in, it was like 2008, and we have had just endless numbers of fun, interesting conversations. Andre, so glad to have you here. Welcome. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Thank you, man. Absolutely. That's great. So you have a very rich background in the world of psychotherapy and counseling, philosophy, integral, spiritual things. Um, so how about we just start there and share a little bit about your story, about how you got to where you were today and what uh, would have been some of the eventful uh, ideas and uh, other things on your journey. All right. Well, I'll do my best to keep this kind of concise and, you know, as relevant to your podcast as I can. Um, so, you know, if I look back on my life, I was a very anxious child. Um, I didn't have that label back then, but, you know, I was constantly biting my fingers, fidgeting, worried a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Lots of developmental trauma in my family. Um, like in high school, I, there were no psychology courses. So again, I really didn't have any label or, you know, real understanding right. of this, but I was suffering. So at 18, I went to the University of Texas at Austin and mm -hmm. made psychology, obviously learned about anxiety. And at that point, kind of self-retrospectively diagnosed myself as, you know, having generalized anxiety disorder for much of all of my life, you know, okay. I mean, even as a kid, I remember, you know, at sleepovers, everybody would be asleep and I'd be up for an hour, you know, so I basically had right. insomnia since my earliest memories, I, you know, mm. sleep, which is, you know, sure. a very, very pervasive anxiety. Right. So I'm studying Western psychology. I'm enjoying that. You know, I mean, I don't know how people can't enjoy psychology, right? This is the nature of mind and behavior. And um, at the same time, my girlfriend's father, who's a really cool dude and a physicist um, introduced me to Eastern philosophies and mm. contemplative practices, which yeah. I, I've always been a pretty intense dude, I guess. And uh, I've engaged, I can vouch for that. <laughs> I, I, I engaged those practices extremely intensively for about 15 years. I mean, mm. not only, you know, hours of meditation a day, but, you know, became, I was a big fisher and hunter. I, you know, I'm from mm -hmm. Texas. Please don't hold that yeah. against me. Uh, I gave those up. I became you a do it with honor and integrity friend. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I can't stand most hunters, but anyway, I gave all those things up. vegetarian, didn't watch TV, minimized talking. You know, I really, it was a, it was a deeply contemplative life and it helped my anxiety tremendously, mm -hmm. but it also, you know, gave me insights into my mind and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But what I was learning, you know, by reading Eastern philosophy and practicing meditation was not jiving with the traditional Western psychology I was learning at UT. Right. Fortunately, I came across the work of Ken Wilber at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, this was the early nineties. So that before the book, sex, ecology, spirituality was published. Okay. All right. So, uh, so that's the book that presented the quadrant. So quadrants, yeah. when I got into Wilbur, the quadrants weren't part of his work, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm quite certain that, uh, I mean, I know a lot of the integral folks and I've never heard an exception to this. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't exceptions, but you know, I got into Wilbur because of his spiritual writings. Right. He did make, he integrated, you know, I think good Western developmental psych with um, contemplative spirituality in a way that I don't think anybody has, you know, Jung kind of started that work, but, you know, Wilbur really, you Wilbur, know. yeah. So this is really sort of developmental stage consciousness 
of levels of awareness. He had established uh, that architecture at this juncture, right? From the get-go, yeah, yeah. Right that, from the get-go. That was basically... So that, that's what made so much sense about, like, you know, uh, you need an ego before you can transcend the ego kind of thing. Yep. Um, so, um, so let's see, I can't, uh, so, so I found, found in Wilbur, was there anything that, I mean, obviously you said it was a spiritual, was there anything about his spirituality? It was just a combination of his philosophical sophistication, his breadth and his spirituality that really captured. Well, I, I was <laughs> I wasn't planning on mentioning this cause you know, uh, he and I both were, um, I don't know what the word is. I, mean, I, I was essentially a, a devotee of a guru named Adi Da, who, if you right. go to Wikipedia, has a horrible, you know, history of, you know, abuses and craziness. Mm. But there was also a type of psychological insight that just absolutely, you know, into the nature of ego and things like this. You know, Wilbur said he was the most enlightened being of all time, and you know, crazy claims and. And he and Adidas certainly claimed that. So, but it was really grounded in a kind of Vedantic Hinduism, mm -hmm. very consistent with Vajrayana Buddhism. And Da required that his students study all, you know, all the contemplative traditions. And uh, so, you know, I had never been uh, much of a reader prior to this time. I mean, mm -hmm. I was a student, but outside of class, I hardly ever read, unless it was a topic I really was into, like fishing or cycling or some music or whatever. Right. But, Right. At this point, I became a voracious reader of mm -hmm. both Eastern philosophy and, you know, I read all of Ken Wilber's books many times. So I would eventually become uh, much less involved with contemplative life. So I no longer meditate hours a day and whatnot. But I still know that a variety of meditative practices can be incredibly helpful to people, not only in reducing various types of you know, psychological suffering, mm -hmm. but offering insights. Now, the key thing is these are first person phenomenological insights in contrast to third person objective descriptions about external reality. But they can't, you know, if ardently taken, undertaken diligently, uh, various meditations, I really do believe can offer profound insights about the nature of the mind, the self, Amen. consciousness, free will, big, big, big stuff, you know? I mean, totally. so I'm, I'm going to put a plug in for Sam Harris's Waking Up app. There are so mm -hmm. many dimensions to that app, not only guided meditations, but all kinds of lessons. And he'll have sections on Stoic philosophy and just a lot of things that I think help you lead a, a you know, a, a wise life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So although I'm agnostic about, you know, I know, I know ontology is a big thing for you and, you know, mm -hmm. ontology is something I'm in, you know, you know, we'll get into this, I'm sure. But so I'm completely agnostic about the ultimate nature of reality, which Wilbur talks all about. Right. But I can I, I feel very comfortable calling myself an atheist when it comes to the sense in, in the sense that I do not believe in a creator God. Yep. And I do not even believe that spirit is the ultimate source of everything. Now it could be. And so in that sense, I'm not some, some, you know, definitions of atheism vary. I, I am not explicitly denying anything with certainty, but I, I lack a belief in those things. Totally. So thus I now disagree with a lot of Wilbur's spiritual right. views. Right. Right. And in particularly, I'm, I'm, I'm highly critical of um, the certainty with which he posits on his ontological views and I don't know if you want to go into a little critique of that now or the later, I think later. Yeah, well, well yeah, why don't we continue with the story, but actually let's double click on this just for people listening, because I think you and I line up basically identically in terms of our, um, you know, sort of our ideas about the universe and ontology and things like that, or at least that's my sense. So I'm also, I would consider myself 
an agnostic atheist, uh, agnostic about the ultimate uh, nature of reality. I don't know. I don't know if anybody's got a clean line on truth in that capital ultimate true world. Uh, you know, um, so I, I'm uncertain about that. I'm atheistic without belief in personal creator gods um, that people have. I've actually become more of a synthiest uh, over the last two, three years. Synthiism is I got from Alexander Bard, um, which is belief in the concept of God, which is an interesting angle. Um, and the idea that uh, orienting to the ways in which people create God um, and pulling off uh, insight from that and, and using that in a particular way without any ontological claims about the nature, uh, you know, of there being a separate being or anything like that. So anyway, but at the agnostic atheist level. Um, so that's really cool. How about you kind of continue with your story? We'll come back to some of these issues because I think this is where, especially you and I and the integral unified bridge have a lot to, uh, you know, jam about. So, um, but anyway, so yeah. So what happened in terms of, what, did you did you have sort of a spiritual unawakening? <laughs> yeah, I'm not even gonna go into that. It, it, okay. it, it actually took about five or more years, but I slowly, yeah, became, um, how to say it, more normal. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, well, I, I guess, you know, one of the things was, it was actually reading Nietzsche, I think, because, you know, like as, as far as the major world religions, uh, you know, Buddhism is the one that appeals the most to me. But, you know, when I read a lot of it, there's still a whole bunch of life negating aspects to it, you know, that uh, I know there's different interpretations about dukkha and the, the nature of suffering. And, it, you know, I think a, a better reading is not that life is suffering, but, um, you know, if you look into life, there is persistent suffering, but that's not all it is. But but it seemed to somehow it seemed to me that even the best versions of spirituality I found were more about transcending the earth and life mm. than really deeply engaging in life. Huh. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure people would just, dis, some would disagree mm -hmm. with me about that, but that was a big part of it. I also these different communities, not just the Adida community, but where I just saw people being uh, very hypocritical who were spiritual teachers and it all just left a bad taste in my mouth. And I also think I naively went into it thinking that, you know, I'm going to practice this so well and I'm going to wake up and be free of suffering. Uh, I began to see that, you know what, everybody suffers, even the ones who, mm. uh, you know, the best mm -hmm. meditation teachers and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I, so I actually, I actually am not proud of this, but a more integrated view would have incorporated more of that practice into my daily life. And I haven't mm. done that as much. Mm. I probably would be healthier if I mm -hmm. have done that, but I haven't. So mm -hmm. I, again, I haven't abandoned it completely. I meditate, you know, but it's just not, I think for me, and this is interesting with regard to the whole mindfulness research, like the dosage effect, mm -hmm. it could be that, you know, I'm more pathological or traumatized than the average person, but like 10 or 15 minutes a day would never have done it for me. Mm. You know, it really took hours a day. And like on Sundays, I would always do four hours and, mm -hmm. and it wasn't just meditation. You know, I was give, I was really reorienting my life, you know what, you know, but, and so um, I, I guess I got to a point where I felt like I wasn't living as much and I wanted to mm -hmm. live my life more. And that meant being less, mm -hmm. I mean, I still think of myself as an introspective, you know, contemplative person. And, and I would say this, okay, I'm an atheist, but I also consider myself spiritual. Like to me, the, the, the values that I try to embody are, you know, like gratitude and compassion, mm -hmm. forgiveness and love. And to me, the only, the, the best adjective for those virtues to me are spiritual. 
Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm all about spirituality. I'm just not about people making claims about the ultimate nature of reality based on their meditation, you know? Um, so what you, as you may have, uh, no. So the, uh, guiding adage of the podcast is that we're searching for a coherent naturalistic ontology that can revitalize the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. So, uh, you know, but, uh, that sounds to me like you're like, well, yeah, how do we stay grounded in the here and now, but how do we make sure that science doesn't cut the legs out from spiritual longings or quests or ways of being in the world? Um, but at the same time, you know, how do you put those science, spirituality kinds of frames of reference together with some degree of uh, intellectual coherence and intelligibility? Yeah. And so that's, so that's one part of the coin. The other coin, which is, you know, totally vital and important. The other one is like, how do you actually like manifest and sustain that practice? Right. And I think that I, I feel very strongly, very confidently that you can't do that without a community. And even if that community is one other person, right. I know, I mean, again, I know there are exceptions to these things. I'm not trying to make sure. Like, it, no, I totally agree with this. It seems yeah. to me that, um, every mess most of the messages that you get from media and whatnot are con are antithetical to the kind of contemplative life that i'm talking about mm. and to counter that like i know that you know part of the reason i was able to do that contemplative practice for so long is because i had somebody that i would often meditate with you know mm -hmm. and um and we, we had our integral life practice where we would actually, the only point in my life I ever went to gym, I hate gyms. I like getting exercise, <laughs> hiking or canoeing or whatever, but because I made a commitment to somebody, you know, um, I would go to the gym regularly, you know, and it's like, mm -hmm. I think that we need people who have similar values to help support us in these practices. Totally. And I don't, I don't see a lot of that. I mean, obviously there's some of it, but you know, I don't really have it. And, um, anyway, so that's kind of a, something else mm -hmm. we could when did you get into psychotherapy and counseling how did that happen um so when i when i so i really did get into psych so most people in my family are natural scientists chemists neuroscientists medical doctors um and uh i was drawn to like i mean you know there's the question of do people who go into psychology and counseling stuff are they more screwed up than the average person and i don't i don't know the literature thoroughly but it seems like they're roughly average um I don't know. But so, I mean, I, I don't think I went into psychology to try to fix my suffering in the way I went into Eastern philosophy and contemplative practice. I really found like the mind to be an incredibly fascinating thing, you know, and right, I wanted right. to understand that. And then when it came to like, well, what aspect of psychology are you going to go into? I didn't, wasn't drawn to experimental psych and, you know, I wanted to help people, you know, <laughs> and uh, I ended up going into counseling rather than psychology proper. Um, um, but uh yeah. So I, I, I want, yeah, I'll get into that in a second. Okay. So, okay sorry. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so, but so although I was initially drawn to Wilbur's work for his spiritual writings, you know um, what's has sustained my interest are the quadrants and the level, mm. you know, states of consciousness and self right. lines of development, those kind of things. Um, so it's interesting. So, so I went to the university of North Texas to, mm -hmm. uh, did, oh, did I, did I, I already said this. Okay. No, no, no. I, I know that, but yeah, okay. no, this is good. To, uh, good to give, we give the weave of the narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. And I did that because, uh, there was a professor, Janice Holden, who, uh, at that time, Wilbur wasn't even called integral. It, it was transpersonal psychology. Right. And, uh, she allowed me to make a specialization in that and do independent study. And, um, which was like, Oh, how cool, you know, and just by chance and, and the role of chance in life 
is remarkable. I mean, just think of how you and I met. I mean, and really, I don't think people like to admit um, how much random chance affects life, you know. But anyway, by, by chance, Michael Mahoney was also at UNT, and I didn't even know who he was at the time, but he would become my intellectual mentor. And like Mahoney and like you, he is a big, he was, he's dead, unfortunately, a uh, big picture thinker, yep. really remarkable. And um, you want to say just a little bit about his background, who he was? Because I don't think many oh, people may I mean, know him. It's a, it's a remarkable story. So, you know, he was trained as a student behaviorist, and then he went to Stanford for his PhD, where Bandura was his um, major professor, his mentor, right. a doctoral thesis advisor. Um, and actually, I asked, um, I asked uh, Mahoney, what is your single favorite uh, piece by Bandura? And it wasn't on, you know, vicarious learning or self-efficacy. It, 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 was, it was something called Chance Encounters in... I, I know Chance Encounters was the in there the title maybe in life, but it, it really had the whole point was again uh, the role of chance and how it affects life. So mm -hmm. uh, anyway, um, but so Mahoney became I, I saw several textbooks that listed him as like one of four or five of the key people in the the you know, pioneers of the cognitive revolution. Yeah. So, you know, initially a behaviorist, and then he founded the first uh, cognitive psychotherapy journal. Yep. And, you know, his 76 book, Cognition and Behavior Modification, Beck said was the most important book of the decade. So, you know, a big cognitive player, but he, he formally left cognitive because of the way they viewed emotions, right? At yep. that time, they are basically epiphenomenal, phenomena that, you know, should be regulated and controlled rather than, you know, harnessed for their, you know, they, they didn't recognize emotions. Totally. So he didn't know what to call his stuff. And I think it's regrettable actually that he called it constructivism because there are so many different types of constructivism yep. that are very contrary to his. I mean, his is a truly unified theory and he did at various points call it developmental constructivism or critical mm -hmm. constructivism, but you know, his 1991 book, Human Change Processes, is really, you know, I think arguably one of the greatest books on how people change. It's a classic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically he says, you know, change is very complex and nonlinear. Uh, change is significant. Change is always deeply emotional in nature. But, you know, as far as like he, he you know, we all have our constructs for unifying. He had he had five basic themes and four core ordering processes mm -hmm. and the themes were that we are active agents. And I, I argued with them that uh, healthy people are active agents, right? Someone who's <laughs> in, in the, the behavioral shutdown of depression is not an active agent, but so, but uh, he, he emphasized the importance of our ordering processes, most of which are tacit and emotional in nature. Um, he, he emphasized the self as a process yep. that uh, we were embedded in social symbolic relatedness right and that he emphasized lifespan development that was a very dynamic dialectical view um so and then he had these four core ordering processes that he said they're highly abstract and they're so core to us he made the he made the analogy like you know your brain and your heart are you know they're really given all kinds of protection right mm -hmm. and and that he would say not politically but we're conservative creatures in that you know change change in our core processes are very difficult right yeah. it's, it's much easier to change your diet or your clothing or your mm. location than your sense of reality or your worldview or your sense of self and identity mm -hmm. 
values and emotions or your sense of control and power. So the, these constructs, with those constructs, he drew from behaviorism and cognitive and psychoanalysis and spiritual traditions. And, it, you know, he, he drew from very interdisciplinary, you know, and so yep. I highly recommend his work, you know, and, and his if you book, uh, what is it? Constructive Psychotherapy 2003, I think it is. That's a great book. Yeah, and that's a lot easier to read than uh, the 91 Human Change Processes. But yeah, either either of those would be a great thing to read if you're interested. So I was very lucky. We became dear friends and I inherited like 90% of his library and a lot of his cooking utensils that I'm still using. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway he, he was a dear, dear person. Loved him to death. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you know, the, so, so Mahoney and Wilbur, I was learning from them, big picture people who sparked my interest in the big picture. Uh, and, you know, that means, you know, trying to understand something as comprehensively as possible from as many angles as possible. So you need the meta view that, that you, you know, and so now as a professor, you know, not only have I been applying integral meta theory to psychotherapy, I've actually done a lot of original work. I mean, when I was a doctoral student, did I, I feel like I've, you know, I did practice this earlier going, you know, I tried to, you know, go through my story. Sure. I can't remember if I'm saying this to you for the first time. So tell me if I'm repeating myself. But... I, I'll let you know. No, uh, yeah. Tell me about your doctoral. Uh... Yeah. So uh, I, I was co-authoring a book called the uh, theoretical models of counseling and psychotherapy, which is actually going into its fourth edition. And uh, I, I was able to convince them to say, Hey, I, let me write a chapter on integral counseling, which really mm -hmm. didn't exist. Right. You know, because so Wilbur, not being a psychologist or a clinician, had addressed some aspects of therapy, but not all of them. And so, all, you know, every theory of, uh, of uh, psychotherapy is both a theory of like personality development and then the change process. So for all of those things that he didn't address, you know, I, I, I didn't have the self-confidence at that time to just fill in the blanks. I drew from people like Mahoney or Diana Fosha or other people who I knew were fundamentally compatible with his worldview, but right. he addressed those things. So it really established integral as a fully fledged theory of psychotherapy and Wilbur loved the chapter. And actually he, he I, I, I sent it to him to say, Hey, am I getting you right? And uh, it was, here was, here was a synchronous chance thing right then he was forming the integral Institute mm. and said, man, this is your chapter is great. You want to join my Institute? And I'm like, Hey, so, you know, I guess <laughs> a lot of time at his house. What time was that? Uh, about what time was that? That would have been the early, uh, let's see, two thousands, like around 2000. 2000. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. So that's and, when I was uh, hanging out with Beck in the University of Pennsylvania. So just yeah. in terms of the time frames. Yeah. Uh -huh. So those were, I mean, that, those were thrilling. So he had about 12 branches, like, you know, integral business, integral education. And he, we were called the integral kids, the graduate students. <laughs> and, uh, <Integral> kids. <laughs> so, but Hey man, I'm sitting there in the room and, you know, here's Wilbur, here's Ke you know, Robert Keegan. There's uh, Michael Mahoney. There's Don Beck. There's Susan Cook Greuter. There's, you know, I, I, it, it was just, and hearing all these discussions, you know, it, it was just really a dream come true. And Actually, it, I didn't know Mahoney was, was so what, did Mahoney and Wilbur then, do they have a fair amount of correspondence? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mahoney was a founding member of the Integral Institute, too. Okay. Right. And, uh, so, yeah, they were, uh, and, you know, again, listening to those two, I mean, that's the thing. I was, I, you know, I think I've told you this before. I would have loved to have just been a, bur a fly on the wall to hear you and Mahoney talk, you know? Yeah. I mean, and so I love, I mean, you know, you and I have good discussions, too, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know. I've got my little self-concept issues. I would have just, you, you would have been a great part of that, you know, yeah. anyway, it, it, enjoyed it, that conversation. It was yeah. extremely, I felt fortunate and just, it was, that was, you know, prime intellectual stuff, you know, it was really good. Right. Sweet. Um, yeah. 
So, so, so was that your dissertation? Was uh, was doing that chapter and in the integral uh, counseling? You made, started to mention your dissertation. No, <laughs> I'm not going to say. I in, I initially wanted to do my uh, dissertation on a developmental theory of love. Not okay. most people, when you, if you type that into psych info, they talk about the stages of like romantic love. Right. right, right. Like, you know, there's like, you know, Maslow talked about deficiency love where you just need, you know, you need somebody. Yep. Sure. And something that's, you know, and then be love, love. Yeah. Yeah. And then a, something more agape and like to try to actually study that. But for various reasons, I switched gears and just, I had created an integral intake form based on yeah. model that I had just, just created for the point of my own clinical practice. And, um, my Janice Holden said, why don't you, you know, do some research on that. And basically mm. just had, uh, you know, a survey where, um, you know, experts who had been like practicing for a certain amount of time, comparatively evaluated that to like, uh, Lazarus's multimodal life history inventory and, right, and, and and uh, it's funny, she, she was a little obsessive compulsive. And uh, I had, she made, basically, I had 22 hypotheses about how people would evaluate them all. And uh -huh. thank God it was a dissertation as opposed to independent research, because I was right in all 22, the order of how, of how everyone would be rated. Wow. Um, and uh, mine was rated best on a lot of them. A lot of them were significant. There were four dimensions that at Lazarus was best. But anyway, so it was, it was a simple, it wasn't like right. a profound right. dissertation, but it, you know, got done and <laughs> that's it right you know feasibility and box checking <laughs> yeah. for that yeah no doubt no and actually it becomes a book i mean the integral intake is a actually yeah, very that, valuable people yeah I, I you know they put it on the internet which you know violates copyright law or whatever but you know lots of people uh yeah are, are using it so that's cool yeah. And and I've and I've done research on that. I've done other empirical research on like integral psychotherapy as practiced, and you know, video dollar sessions coded them all, and you know, that's resulted in my amending some of Wilbur's claims, like the claim that <clears throat> that kind of a cognitive awareness is the central curative change agent, which I call into question, and I doubt I, I call into question the very notion that there is a single curative factor for all people and. I certainly have very different views on the role of emotions in change. Um, right. So, you know, my own view of integral psychotherapy is heavily influenced by Mahoney and then like um, Davin Lou's intensive short-term dynamic therapy, other experiential dynamic therapy. So, you know, there's a number of people like Elliot Ingersoll, Mark Foreman, who've written books on integral psychotherapy, but our, our books are considerably different. I mean, we of course all use those same basic five constructs. Mm -hmm. All quadrants, all levels, all lines, all tapes, all you know, states. But um, yeah, uh, they're not all. We're not all the same by any means. No, absolutely. So my mom, so my views continue to evolve, and uh, certainly, right. you know, uh, on in all honesty, you know, when it comes to a big picture view that is trying to coherently understand the nature of reality in a scientific way. You're my number one person. I can't wait to read all of your book. I've read some of it the, when you're working yeah, on well. it. So I used to would have said that about Wilbur, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but you demand now. All right. Well, fantastic. That's why you're on the show. <laughs> so, well, actually, let's talk a little bit about our own journey together. Okay. So because um, because what it is fortuitous within this past month, um, you're first author. I'm second author on an actual paper that, you know, we'll see what happens, but it, in some ways it makes a little bit of a mark in the uh, world of psychotherapy integration. Uh, and in fact, that I think that starts 
if um, if memory serves, doesn't Jeffrey Magnavita make a connection between the two of us somewhere like in 2007, 2008? Yeah. So he had, he was forming, so Jeffrey Magnavita is a you know major figure in, uh, Oh, as large as any figure in unified psychotherapy. And uh, he was creating that unified psychotherapy project. And he has those four domains, like the, you know, individual intrapsychic and the dyadic and triadic and the larger uh, ecological systems is his fourth domain. And he appointed you and me to be co-chairs of that. And I'll never forget. Right. I, I said, Oh, you know, I'm honored that you're inviting me, but that's the domain I know the least about. He goes, that's the domain that we all know the least about. <laughs> anyway, but, but anyway, the, the good, that, I don't even know what's going on with that project now, but the good thing is, is that we got paired up and I, and I think you and I both remember our first conversation. And then you invited me down there to give a talk on my thing. And uh, we headed off that weekend and absolutely we, we've always, yeah. Back then, I was thinner and had more hair. We looked, we even looked more similar back then. <laughs> well, I had less of a gray beard. <laughs> yeah. So actually, in terms of so, uh, you know, that actually people won't necessarily know. So let's just give them a little bit of background uh, about the whole psychotherapy integration thing itself. You know, um, in fact, they will may may know. Certainly, my own journey starts with psychotherapy and its various schools of thought, and then the idea that you have the best of the best do really good things and the worst of the worst don't. And why can't we kind of integrate them in a particular way? And then there's this whole movement of psychotherapy, um, which uh, for systematizing the integration. Uh, and then there were these four different paths, right? Uh, which obviously we know, but so one is common factors. So common factors is the idea that, hey, there, uh, there's a, a language of healing, a language of relationship, a language of being with people, instilling hope. That really is the fundamental curative. That's one general idea. Um, there was the idea you engage in technical eclecticism. You take techniques that empirical support. You apply them in some generalized frame. There's ideas that you assimilate and integrate. You stay in a home, but you look for concepts. You pull them around. And then possibly theoretical integration. You look from one theoretical causal explanatory concept, tie it to another Paul Wachtel does that with cyclical psychodynamics. Those were the four big branches. And then as you and I and Jeffrey Magnavita and others got together, we were saying there's a thing called unified, you know? And we started that, you know, 2008, 2010, uh, ultimately finally got a good pu publication to articulate it as the fifth path. You wanna narrate a little bit about, uh, you know, some of that and we can riff off of that in a little bit. Yeah, I guess I'd like to make one little, uh, I don't know, just a prefatory, prefatory comment mm -hmm. about, so um, now I, you're different, you know, among the unified psychotherapists, you, you're clearly different because you're starting with the problem of psychology and you're, you're actually trying to unify all of science. I mean, psychology, which has influence, I mean, has implications for really all of science. All science, totally. Mm -hmm. So, so. I, I think it's very accurate to call what you're doing unification, but so part, so, so again, you know, those four pathways were established 30 or 40 years ago and no yep. other pathway had been added. So it's very significant that they've added a fifth pathway, but uh, so, you know, both with our writings and the many presentations that you and Jeffrey and Jack and all of us have, have done, there's clearly so much confusion about what unification is. And it's surprising because I think we're fairly clear writers, you know, and I think that the idea of unification, you know, kind of connotes that it's going to be a single thing. And with that, uh, you know, you can't have dissent because we've established this hegemonic thing. And that's clearly not what we're talking about. And so I actually, 
you know, back in the 2000s, I, there are numerous articles I wrote where I, call, where I was saying there is a fifth pathway and I called it meta-theoretical integration. Oh, really? Yeah. And so it's interesting because, you know, when in the, in the journal psychotherapy integration, when they define unification, they say meta theoretical frameworks that, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think that that's actually more accurate for what I do than unification. I'm really not unifying everything in the way that you, your project is. Um, I mean, there's certain things about it that are kind of are unifying, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I haven't achieved unification, but I have achieved meta theoretical integration. Right. So I don't know. I was just, I've been thinking about that lately that, you know, if I, I, I went along with unification cause I was like, Oh, y'all were the place where I felt at home, you know, right. the, the unified group. I was like, Oh, we're, we're all thinking about the same kind of thing with different constructs, different lenses, but we're definitely have the same desire to see the mountain range as opposed right. to just, you know, uh, isolate right. the peaks here and there. So, so yeah, there'd been all this confusion and maybe in, in full disclosure, it's bizarre that the Journal of Psychotherapy Integration that recently added unification as a fifth pathway. And here we have eight of the leading scholars in unification writing a white paper and we get it rejected. Yes. No, <laughs> twice. twice. A little bit. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, that's a little bit weird, but anyway, we eventually got it in a good journal, contemporary psychotherapy. And uh, yeah, I, th- I mean, you know, who knows? I- I'm not always an accurate um, predictor of my work, but I-, I think this has a potential to be somewhat seminal 10 years down the road when we've kind of really said, this is what it is and this is how it's practiced and here are the key defining features. And uh, I- well, I'm, I'm so, proud of- Yeah, no, and I think your point about, I mean, we, so we, what we were able to agree on, yes, the, the issue, there's different aspects to unification, clearly. Um, and we, we are, we were able to consolidate that it's a meta theoretical perspective, you know, uh, and which basically the metaphor then is these different schools of thought are like mountains, you know, and they, and then it, in a, the question of psychotherapy integration is like, well, how do these mountains relate to each other? And can we systematically relate them and common factors extracts and technical eclecticism takes the parts and assimilative integration moves the concepts and theoretical integration creates dialogue between them and maybe some sort of hybrid at a conceptual or causal explanatory level. But what unified us all, even though we were doing it in different ways, and I think it was pretty clear that me, you and Jack were building the theoretical architecture that was in the ballpark of this, um, was to look at the mountain range as a whole. You know, and that's what we argued really, I think compellingly. And, and then, and the argument is not that this is final. It's simply really, it's actually, um, I was looking at Kuhn, uh, Thomas Kuhn, and somebody critiqued me because I was saying, well, uh, there's a thing that meta theories like of after the paradigms. And the guy was like, well, actually, the way Kuhn originally meant it is like, it's like, it's a real paradigm. Like we don't have a paradigm yet. Um, there is no normal way of doing psychotherapy. Yeah. And that's technically true, although in the social sciences, paradigm means all these different things. But the point of it is, is that we just have these collections. It's really a multi-pre-paradigmatic state of schools of thought. And yeah. what the, the meta theory views is that actually you can draw various boundaries around the various schools of thought. So you see essentially the landscape. That's what the argument is. Um, and, uh, and I think that we were able to then frame. So my work, you know, I'm, I think we were able to say, well, my work's really about metaphysics and ontology, you know, sort of like it's, a, it's an idea about what we mean by the mental in real, and then to get the concepts and categories right in relation, which we don't have. Um, the strength of Wilbur, I would argue, is in the quadrants and epistemology. It creates an integrative pluralistic epistemology and methods and see how those things interrelate. 
And then you have Jack uh, and Jeffrey affording us a dynamic biopsychosocial systems model uh, that would cut across various levels and see the interrelations and plate them in complex and dynamic uh, system language. And, and I really, I was very impressed uh, by the, you know, different, these are different ways to see the mountainscape um, and, and the landscape as a whole. And I think there's certainly still work to be done to put them in relation and see where they go. But the affordance of harmony around the system as a whole to move us towards a paradigm that is not, it's, it's not, a, I mean, people are so worried about authority and all all this other stuff is like, it's just getting the basic concepts and categories and a shared sense of the landscape, you know, laid out so we can actually talk to each other with some degree of coherence without all this equivocation about terms. So anyway, that's my, you know, frame, which you already know, and we know together, but it's a, I think it's actually a very important um, potential shift. And it is a qualitative shift from the search yeah. for psychotherapy integration into the potential of actually doing it. Yeah. It, it, so, yeah, I mean, like, I think we established very clearly in the paper, the complementarity of the three meta theories. I think, I think what is achievable, but we, we haven't done yet is like, where are the synergies? How, how is it, how does it really, you know, um, build up, you know, it's not just the, you know, addi addition of the, the components, you know, but what, what really surprises me, you know, from these reviewers and whatnot of, of our manuscript is how many of them didn't see the difference between this and theoretical integration. Yeah. No, several it, of them. Just, it, and to me, it's just worlds apart. We're, we're not integrating one or two approaches at, you know, some fine granular level. We're stepping back with a zoomed out view to see how all of these different components and approaches, um, you know, view parts of the landscape and only with that meta view can you put them together and see the whole, like, you know, people are unified, therefore our theory should be unified, you know? Um, healthy people are unified. <laughs> well, I mean, actually that's a, right. I do think actually health and, di and uh, optimal functioning dysfunction has a lot to do with actually integration, coherence uh, versus disintegration. I mean, I, I certainly understand you know, it's hard to and, and to try to, you know, comprehensively explain all the different parts of people. So people will narrow and they'll create some aspectualized lens. Um, but I do, I th you know, I think it's like, well, wait a minute. The question simply is, can you box in the key insights with some degree of coherence and then start to put them in relation? And I think that's what the Unified Pathway does. And I think that actually the ways in which we've started to do that affords moving forward with more and more synergy, like you said. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm not just trying to ask his here, but truly, you know, I, I mean, I'm not trying to minimize my work, but, you know, I, I work within the realm of psychotherapy and, and what you're right. doing is such a larger project that it's just, you know, my hat's off to you and it's just, it's, it's amazing. But so, so, but I will say that I'm extremely proud. Like, so I wrote a book with Elliot Ingersoll called understanding psychopathology and integral exploration. And if you look at like, and so, you know, we wrote different chapters, but like I wrote the chapter on anxiety and right. if you look at that, it's a big chapter and it, you know, I've got, I don't know, just tons and tons of re references, you know, you know, what, what I encountered so much in that book is people saying things like physiology causes anxiety or mm. thought cause anxiety. And it's just, it's like almost everybody has this unidimensional model and guess what? There's really compelling research for, 
tons and tons of perspectives because all of those perspectives do contribute. And although I haven't been able to like, you know, I don't think anybody's done this show precisely how all of those variables interact to not recognize that almost all of those variables, whether they're, you know, neuro neurochemistry or attachment histories or discrimination and trauma in the external world, all of these things contribute. Not that they're all involved in, with each person's anxiety, but um, I don't know. It just, it boggles my mind how few approaches really appreciate. It's, it's complex that how many variables are involved in, in this case, like the development of psychopathology and then correspondingly with treatment, there's tons of totally. And, you know, one of my favorite things, you know, Barry Wolf was involved with uh, David mm. Barlow in the early NIH sure. studies on uh, exposure and phobias. Yep. And uh, Barlow said, you know, tra was trained as a behaviorist. He goes, I was struck by how often behavioral me methods were evoking unconscious processes, processes that the very approach would deny their existence. You know, the, you know, the behavioral exposure was eliciting all these unconscious uh, catastrophic fears, you know, and it's like, right. oh, that's at least two approaches you need there. Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. Yeah, actually, uh, David Barlow and I, we have the same dissertation advisor, Harold Lightenberg. So oh, yeah? we share that history. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, certainly obviously my critique of the structure of our knowledge in particular focused on our scientific knowledge is that we haven't uh, done justice to give people a, a model of how things operate at various levels and dimensions of complexity and recognize them as, you know, and, and, and certainly Wilbur gets this, the holarchy model gets this at some level in the sense that there's, there's say vibrations that are happening at different scale and then you can think about them quasi as fractals, but they operate at different levels. You know? So neuron activity and this conversation are two different levels of analysis. Um, and they inter you know, intersperse with each other at various levels and impact each other in various ways. And that just has to be, um, you know, that's, that, is, that is the way it is. There's endless amounts of uh, evidence for that at multiple levels, both logical evidence uh, as well as you know, empirical analytic evidence in that regard. Um, and, and it's crucial to understand because it also gets to the project of what science says about our lives. Um, so the, in other words, the physical reductionistic kind of an analysis of like, oh my God, I'm just a bunch of chemicals. is just so unbelievable. The thought <laughs> is not a bunch of chemicals, you know? It's a, and so it's really uh, been, I think one of the big uh, reasons we've had a meaning crisis is that sort of particulate broken simple linear causation kinds of models, which are, and then sort of the authority of science somehow, uh, or at least in certain sectors getting activated. It's a very, very, it's one of the things we were actually certainly trying to um, undo with uh, a lot of, I think, sort of meta-modern sensibility movements along those lines. Yeah. So it's funny, I think before we started recording, I was saying, let's not steer too far from psychotherapy, but um, I know that, you know, I'm, I'm not as up on all the stuff that you and John Verveke are doing, but, you know, with that meaning crisis, you know, uh, so many people no longer have their meaning making source because that, that was rooted to these traditional, you know, pre-modern uh, systems that are hard to buy into if you're very rationally inclined. And yet, you know, Rollo May was writing like in the 50s and 60s about we need something to replace those, right? Totally. I mean, and and to my knowledge, we haven't done that, right? Totally. Absolutely. I mean, that's been, I think now people are waking up to it. I mean, I think that so Rollo May, 
And the psychoanalysts and humanists, uh, you know, and other philosophers in various genres have been offering the critique, but up until the 1950s and 60s, um, you know, the industrial, capitalistic, and, you know, physics world are really the dominant intellectual, you know, systems that are sort of engendering an instrumentalism, a capitalistic instrumentalism, a control over technology, an idea that, that you know, there'd be a theory of everything through physics and, you know, we'll, we'll just sort of come to terms with our world that way. And I think that now, over the last 50 years, the emergence of postmodernism, the, uh, you know, and, and the stalling of the scientific enterprise and things like that, I think that people are, there's a real sense, certainly in all the little circles that at least I'm in now, after being sort of bumped out of you know me, I was you know, in the heart of the academy trying to do my little thing and trying to say, okay, well, we'll do psychotherapy over here. We'll do, you know, empirical psychology here, general psychology, theoretical, philosophical psych, and then not finding any fucking home at all, really, and that has any traction. Um, but I would say now I've certainly found where the zeitgeist is, interestingly, where Wilbur lived, <laughs> sort of on the edge uh, of the, you know, in intellectual circles critiquing the academy from the outside. Uh, that's what I see the sort of game B, meta-modern, intellectual deep web, you know, TOK, that kind of integral stage. All of that is um, offering, I think, this kind of critique. But I really feel like the, um, the what 30 years ago was a confidence in the establishment and the institution and the powers that be, now it really feels like, I, I at least get the sense that everybody in their gut's like, shit, I don't know that the old... <laughs> The old modernist system is up to the task. You know, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, a collective zeitgeist shift that says people are going to stay in power to the extent that they can. Um, and But there really is something afoot uh, that we really need a fundamental, you know, upgrade. But as you say, for like what Mahoney says, once we get baked into these systems of justification, we build institutions around them, we build practices around them, we build status indicators around them. Um, to create a paradigmatic shift of the size that's required is very, very difficult. It's going to take, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm certainly in for the long haul and expecting to try super hard and have very limited impact. <laughs> well, who, who was it that said that scientific revolutions basically take place by people dying off? Right, right. I love that quote. I'm actually blanking on who it was that offered that. But yes, people have to die off. I mean, it's sort of a Thomas Kuhn kind of like, yeah. um, people will be very, and the nature of this kind of change is, is you know, um, but I think one of the good effects, I mean, obviously a lot of tragic effects, but one of the good effects of COVID, if you want to call it a good effect, is at least a fundamental like, wait a minute, wake up call. You know, it's like there's something going on in the structure of the global infrastructure that we've built. Um, and I also really do think that there are many, many emerging edges. Um, and I'm excited because it feels to me like the the theory of knowledge and the emerging, you, you know, the unified theory of knowledge, the tree of knowledge and the structures that are set up, it sets ready to catch um, the various threads of uh, potential that are emerging. So that's what it feels like to me. Um, and I've been hanging more and more out with integral people lately. I think there's a change in the integral communities, at least the integral communities that I'm sitting with, like Bruce Alderman um, and Layman Pascal. Um, yeah, are you going to... Yeah, and Zach Stein. Uh, th there's a, you know, Wilbur was brilliant. He did all his thing and he had his, you know, kind of, but there's sort of the post-integral phase in terms of now it's starting to weave its way into other systems. Uh, and I'm feeling this integral unified synergy 
um, way more, you know, and I've got my own issues with it because I'm more on the science side. I was critical of Wilbur. I didn't appreciate what he had done. I feel like I've come much more to appreciate his breadth and brilliance in a particular way. And I think his system is becoming more flexible. So um, I, I really do believe that there's sort of a opportunity. I don't know if it's going to be realized, but it's an opportunity for sort of a melding of big picture systems and a collective yeah. ecology that brings sort of uh, good things uh, with it. That's what I hope. Yeah, I'm hopeful too. I mean, it basically requires, I mean, like, I mean, I'm not trying to, to speak like I'm some kind of special person, but you know, I, I had to become less wedded to like the idea. It's just basic open being a good scientist is open. And I realized that, you know, I went through my years of idealizing Wilbur and then mm -hmm. you have to, I, I became not so attached to these concepts in a rigid way, but like, okay, how can this be useful? What is strengths and limitations? And, you know, um, you know, what, what, what parts of the, the model are valuable and which can be jettisoned, you know? Uh, totally. Totally. Yeah. And I think you've written brilliantly on that. I mean, I think it, you know, your integral psychotherapy book um, to me, I know, you know, it, it, it laid out and, and I, I think the way you uh, employ the quadrants for the symptoms of psychopathology, the ways of thinking about clients, the ways of organizing uh, the schools of thought, um, shows the power of that epistemological architecture in a very, very great way. Yeah, I mean, the, the quadrants really are um, remarkably powerful. And it bugs the shit out of me when people say, oh, that's just the Johari window. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, but um, actually, you know, he interviewed me, I don't know, a year or two ago. And I actually wanted to- Who interviewed you? Uh, uh, Wilbur. Oh, Wilbur himself, okay. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, although I had spent a lot of time, you know, with him in his house and stuff like that, I never, you know, we, we were kind of friends, but not like at a super close level. And so, uh, I actually, you know, rather than him asking all the questions, I asked him, you know, can you tell me like, when was the moment when, you know, you had the idea of the quadrants, you know, cause I know that he, he would use the long yellow legal pads and you know he read voraciously and you know it was really cool when back in those days when he was let you know he, he became quite ill right right and, right, right uh actually with myalgic encephalomyelitis but um mm. uh uh you know he, when he spoke like at these because when, when we were in those integral kids there were people who were getting their phds in economics and then in psychology and in anthropology and philosophy and man it seemed that he could just speak like he was reading from a book you know just in on all these different fields you know and right, it was just right. totally remarkable um so I actually asked him, I said, you know, what was the moment, you know, when you kind of had that? Cause I would think it had been kind of like a Eureka. Aha, yeah. you know, and and I, I, I don't know if he wasn't really, really specific or, but I basically kind of forgotten it. <laughs> but, but anyway, I do think that, I mean, the fact is they, they can be used for so many, I mean, I've used them for so many different things. And again, one of the key things, and I think this, you know, it probably applies to your model too, is like just reading just knowing integral theory does not make you better at anything. You have to then go in and say, okay, if I really look at these things through the quadrants, 
I have to learn this neuroscience and this behavioral and cognitive and family systems and attachment theory and all. If we're just talking about psychotherapy, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it just, it requires more of you. Um, but it's such a powerful, it's, it's, you know, it's so powerful, but it's so parsimonious and yet it's simple. And yet it, it's both simplifying in that it helps you organize, but then it's totally complexifying in that what it opens up, you know, but, um, yeah. So I really enjoy that. You know, I mean, um, totally. very grateful to him, you know, whatever critiques I have of him here and there, you know, I've, I've made my career <laughs> from, his, <laughs> from his constructs, you know, so. No doubt. What other, what aspects of psychotherapy are, you know, I mean, you're, you're a student of the field, you know, it inside and out. What's, what are obviously the quadrants are, are central to you, the way you think about the big picture, but what is your understanding of sort of the psychotherapeutic process or what are the kinds of insights that you really are drawn to? So I should say that for the um, past, okay, so, you know, I got my license at the end of my doctoral uh, years after internships and stuff like that. And I saw a pretty good diversity of clients, but I didn't cancel many schizophrenic or really, you know, uh, bipolar clients. So I, I didn't work with the most severely persistently mentally ill. So, um, you know, lots of anxiety and depression and personality disorders. And then for about 10 years, I wasn't seeing any, any clients. I was trying to get tenure, you know, public <laughs> stuff like that. and then, so I guess for the past seven or eight years, I have a small practice, like one to three patients at a time. And these are all self-pay, you know, people who drive 45 miles to come out to my house in the country. So it's not a representative, you know, right. I'm not seeing a really representative population, but what's become really clear to me, but again, I hope it's not confirmation bias is that I, it seems like I only get difficult clients for one thing, like, you know, all lots of comorbidities and lots of these are, just, you know, chronic lifelong problems is that, uh, despite, you know, I, I do look, try to do my best to use my integral intake and look at people holistically, but that for significant change to occur, it, I'm just really struck by how much you need to work at the emotional levels. I mean, not talking about emotions, but really getting them activated. And for most people, that means getting past very, very big walls of defense. Right. And that's what I found. So, so I, I, I was, I, I read thoroughly and wrote a review of Diana Foch's transforming power of affect in 2000 okay. and was blown away by it. That's an extremely beautiful integrative scholarly work. I mean, she integrates neuroscience and attachment theory and so much great, great, great stuff. I didn't know at the time that she was trained by Davin Lou, you know? And so mm -hmm. for people who don't know, I, I honestly believe that, I think that Davin Lou is the single most important uh, technical contributions. Um, I mean, you got to think of Freud. He started the stuff, right? Rogers totally was revolutionary. Most people would say Beck, but I don't know. I, I actually think more highly of behaviorism than cognitive theory myself. Cognitive is important. If people really the level right, of listen, I ain't going to be defended. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, if people were really doing schema work, then it's totally awesome. But most of the cognitive therapy I see looks pretty superficial. But I mean, it's totally the go-to for things like crisis or helping someone cope. And you know, if you if you have a change, if you lose a job or if you have a change in a situation, how you think about things can be totally important. But for people who have chronic, long, lifelong problems, 
I really find that the walls of defense are so, I didn't recognize them until I studied Davenlu right. that, uh, I just did not recognize these various processes as defenses and how hard it is to confront defenses without the person feeling defend, uh, attacked. Mm-hmm. Right. And so helping the person, uh, you know, make things that were systonic, you know, dystonic. So like so that they can actually not see the defense as part of who they are, but it's something that's actually harming them. And, um, you know, to do that. So I don't do, you know, I, I, Davin Lou was very confrontational and aggressive. You know, I, I try to be very empathic and com, uh, compassionate and more like FOSHA, but um, I really feel like I've become a much, much better therapist because of all the training. And I feel like I got the greatest supervisor in the world here in Rochester, Marvin Squirman, who mm. was, uh, you know, very, very, very close to uh, Davin Lou for about 20 years. So uh, I can't, you know, I, when I learned about these things, and I know you're familiar, like, you know, uh, McCullough's Changing Character is just a tremendous sure. book. She trained with Davin Lou. I, almost all, all these people that I think are so great, they almost all trained with Davin Lou. And then they took, they, they took from him what they valued and jettisoned the rest, right? I mean, yep. he's got a total cult going there, you know. Right. Uh, so let's talk about this so we can deepen this a little bit for people that are, are listening, okay? So, um would it be fair to say, if we talk about defenses, that people have, there's certain aspects of, of trauma, of darkness, of, of, of pain, of rage, of, of contempt, okay, that, that really, that sit in people's psyche in particular ways that serve as a massive threat um, to the normal everyday experience. And so they build ways of avoiding, suppressing, repressing, compartmentalizing, and moving away from that kind of stuff. But the energy in relationship to what that occupies in their psychic structure relative every day is, is then central to their structure. Okay? Um, and there's no way just to narrate that without, the, without charging the mode, okay? without getting through what is blocking and bringing that. But to do that drops them into certain kinds of either regressive modes of like, you know, they don't want to do it. So they're defended against it. So they resent the shit out of you or they're trying, or then they become so overwhelmed by it. And then they decompensate this process by which individuals can gain access to these core elements and begin the process of feeling them with arousal, but then reintegrating and re-narrate them so that the fundamental relationship of the architecture of the self begins to evolve and change. Is that fair to kind of uh, characterize what you're seeing and the kind of defensive work that you're advocating for. I, I agree with everything you said, but I think for some people, if they're not therapists, that may be kind of abstract. It's like, okay. So if I can make it a little more concrete, it's like, um, and this is what, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I feel embarrassed, but it wasn't my fault. I, you know, I got really great training. I had professors like Mahoney and then I had also just a lot of crap supervisors <laughs> and, you know, I was told just follow the feeling magnify the, you know, you know, get the client more in touch with the feelings, but many, if not most feelings are actually defenses against the true feeling. Secondary right? so, feeling. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the wife comes in and, you know, her husband slapped her and you say, how do you feel? And you say, well, I, I feel betrayed. And, you know, no, he betrayed you. The, you don't feel, but we use these terms all the time. Parents mm-hmm. say to their children, I'm very disappointed in you. No, the child disappointed you. And the truth is you're angry at the child or you're angry at the, the husband for slapping you. And you can ask them that question 20 times and they'll give you 20 different responses, none of which are anger. And I know a lot of people, um, I've had so many students, you know, react to say, 
who are you, you know, to <laughs> say what they should be feeling. But the truth is, you know, these basic emotions, you know, that Ekman has researched and whatnot, they're very universal. Different cultures have rules on what's socially acceptable and how to express them. But loss is the reaction. I mean, you know, sadness is the reaction to loss. Anger is the reaction to some kind of violation or injustice, right? Uh, fear is a response to immediate danger. These kind, you know, so, you know, if, if, if you, if it, if a wild tiger is approaching you and you don't feel fear, there's something wrong with you, you know, and that fear, they, all these adaptive emotions in contrast to a defensive emotion, they motivate adaptive action tendencies, run from the tiger or with anger, protect yourself, draw boundaries, you know, make you right the wrong or whatever sadness, you know, grieve, consolidate the loss. And, um, but, you know, people are, and, you know, what's, what's so fascinating I mean, the convergence, the, I think, consilience around, like, when you look at Rogers and his development of an incongruent self, it's this classic defenses. People have, you know, if you express anger and your parents withdraw love, you learn that it's, you know, even you filter though that shit. the organism <laughs> naturally experiences anger and the anger actually feels good initially, but compared to having love withdrawn, you start to deny that you have the experience of anger. And again, people who aren't psychologists or therapists may not really appreciate that the, it, people no longer have the experience of anger, even though they clearly are anger, you know? And I mean, I'll never forget this one client I had who had a history. I was a doctoral student and a very violent past, had been incarcerated numerous times. And I can't remember what question I asked him, but he was sitting in his chair, white knuckled. I'm not angry. I'm not angry. You know, and it's, and it's like, he wasn't lying to me. He was, he was basically a lexithymic, you know, mm -hmm. unable to label yep. feelings. And it's like, uh, yeah, you are. I mean, I didn't say that, but it's like, you know, uh, there are lots of times when you can even lay people can know more accurately what some people are feeling than the person themselves because sure. they're truly defended. And when you go, so, you know, if you're a young child and expressing angry gets you beaten up by your dad, it's very adaptive to deny anger, right? It's the most adaptive thing you could possibly do. Uh, maybe a, maybe a child who's being raped in an incest, they dissociate. That's not happening. That's not me. That dissociation is the healthiest way of coping in that moment. The problem, as you know, these defenses become completely habitual, automatic, and chronic. And they don't only, the, what really cripples people, and that's a word that may not sound PC, but one of the great, I hope I don't get off this tangent, but let, let me come back to the word cripple, if you, if you can remind me. Okay. Yeah. What really cripples people is not, I mean, I think it's, well, is that these defenses don't just have the intrapsychic effect of not knowing your emotions, they create a barrier to intimacy with people. Right. So you cannot really have uh, true emotional closeness. And then in my, in my theory, that's something that humans need. And that's something that has always bothered me about Beck is that he didn't basically have that as a real human need. Yeah. Um, and so the, the defense is really cripple people. And um, now, again, if you're working with people who are in poverty and experiencing all kinds of discrimination, then, you know, defense work and emotion work may not be the most important thing. But for the clients I've been seeing the last seven or eight years, mm. that seems to be the bulk of what I'm doing to really uh, deal with. They all have complex trauma in their history mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, difficulty trusting people. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say, so here's an example, you know, Davin Lou talked about the the key thing was a breakthrough to the unconscious, which is extremely dramatic portrayals mm. of rage mm -hmm. where they act out murdering parents and things like that. And then intense grief and guilt comes. And, um, 
I have done those under, you know, I video all my sessions to this day mm -hmm. and receive supervision, but you know, that process is very tricky. And I've, I've had pseudo, what, what my therapist said were pseudo unlockings and a client went home and acted out, didn't hurt anybody, but damaged property. So I, I kind of veered away from doing that part of ICP mm -hmm. and without doing the thing that he says is the key. I have clients who have had such significant characterological change mm. that he said could only happen with unlockings, right. but it's, it's an example of learn to take from different approaches. What, you, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, what, what's valuable and what's not. And, um, Again, I, I, I recommend everybody to, to, learn, to learn about Navamu, but I think the best places to learn about it are from Fredrickson and Navis, not Navamu himself. Uh, mm. So mm. I'm still, yeah, I've just gotten really excited. It's been a nice thing. For a while there, I was kind of like, I don't know, not completely passionate about some mm -hmm. psychotherapy stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I've always been interested in the unified stuff and talking to you always jacks me up <laughs> but uh in the best way possible and uh but no huge fan of the experiential dynamic therapies uh okay. but i'm not sure if i really got answered your question about defenses oh yeah, okay. no totally but i was going to have you come back to cripple yeah so some you know that that word um you know people well first of all you know it sounds like a very bad way of describing somebody with a disability but one of the things that davin lee would do and i really admire this you know is he, he filmed all of his sessions and uh when people would have you know tremendous recoveries or healing or whatever he would show them uh, sessions from their first or second session and the most common word that the patients themselves used to describe themselves was i can't believe how crippled i was mm -hmm. and so he says that that word really kind of resonates in the unconscious yeah. and so i will i'll you know things that i'll say to clients are you know it's so obvious how much they're suffering and, you know, they come out here, they self pay, they drive, you know, an hour each way. Mm. And yet then they don't want to really face the core stuff. They're talking so I'll point out, you know, are you aware that you're, you know, you're not talking about your core struggles. And I said, so do you want to continue avoiding this or do you, do you want to stay crippled for the rest of your life? Go to your grave, you know, crippled, or do you want to, you know, try to get to the root of your problems? And that word seems to really, rather than sounding critical, they feel understood. No, like, that makes sense to me. I think, yeah. I think that if you, if, um, it's, it, you know, right. Obviously it carries the connotations, triggers various things. And I, and I, you know, there's some place for that and there's some place for it. Let's not be, we can't be tiptoeing around stuff. I mean, it's the whole, much of the whole point is people sort of overreact to shit and then they create defensive about shit and then we're now paralyzed, right? Mm -hmm. um, to me, certainly, I, I think of the flow between the body, you know, fundamentally in the body into the heart, which really is this, for me, is this influence matrix, this attachment structure with all the powerful social emotions. It's the felt sense of this dream of being known and valued and what it would be by poor college to feel that self, soul fulfillment. And then so many individuals then who feel the opposite, feel the abandonment and the rejection. And then all of the either contempt of self, contempt of other in relationship to that entangled mass. And it is that abyss that is so terrifying and, and the inability to know what to do with that in relation. You know? yeah. you know? and, and what what therapy affords people that have had these kinds of injuries and then have built the defenses to compartmentalize it, but then sit in essentially a disintegrated way, you know, vertically. They're like oh, yeah. heads out here and yeah. they're just doing instrumentally and our culture feeds that that's okay. And you know, what's the real point? But they're basically walking soulless around. I mean, we're, you know, the, the system itself is not like charged and, and ready to say, hey, this is what I care about because what it's cared about is just, <laughs> 
jammed into the back. And then that is seen, the heart then is seen as this, you know, scary as shit or cancerous, nasty kind of thing. But the interaction of this cancer and the fear of it leaves you crippled. I mean, the psychic energy is clearly not operating in the sort of uh, the ways that the mechanisms, use a more psychodynamic term, the mechanisms that afford smoothness and flow and integration and then intimate connection. So I can see you as a brother and be connected. To, if I can't see myself, how the fuck can I bring you in and be connected? And so this release, this connection, this re-narrating, then uh, if you can then expand that in and heal some of those wounds, you change the fundamental foundational structure of, of the self. So I, I mean, that's definitely beautiful stuff. Yeah. And, you know, again, th this was true prior to social media, but, you know, this whole thing about people, I've got, you know, 400 Facebook friends and you have no intimacy, no one really knows you. Right. right. And um, I'm just so struck by people who are either, you know, clients who actually, you know, don't have any kind of life partner or they're married with kids, but they, you know, have no closeness. They really go through life feeling alone with people around them, you know, right. and, uh, so, you know, it's tremendously rewarding to be able to help people, you know, overcome that. But it, it is very difficult work. You know, it's not the four, four, six, eight sessions stuff, you know. <laughs> no, well, it's got to be, you got to create the safety. You got to start to create the process of awareness. People keep it at a particular thing. You also have to find, I mean, it's not like some magic switch. The system has got to come aligned at the right level. So they trust you and you have a way of direct what I call directive empathy. You empathize with them. You shine the light in a particular way. The world's got to intersect in luck, <laughs> random ways. And then all of a sudden, you know, then it opens it up if you're fortunate. And again, it's not like some, you know, Hollywood makes it all dramatic. But, you know, you for me, at least, you get people aspectualizing different aspects of it, getting in contact with it, you know, then they come back to it, then it run away. But slowly but surely, there's a developmental process of relating to that which could not be related to in the past and and that's you know i've seen that transformation happen i've felt it in myself in various times yeah historically and it's absolutely crucial to um i think it's a central feature of what defines psychotherapy especially any kind of depth-based psychotherapy yeah so. hmm. um were there you know so that, that you know so that i think that i wanted to definitely get your sense and expertise is, are you going to be on the integral stage with the, with Layman Pascal at all? Or? I have, I have I think not. They, they may, they may be in contact with you. I thought, so uh, that would be uh, share some of your narrative along those lines. I know you do some group, uh, at least training people in group work. Oh yeah. And actually I, I find that to be so um, fulfilling. Um, I just finished a doctoral advanced group course this semester and it was it was online with uh, zoom and I've had really good success with class and individual clients on zoom. But I thought, you know, I, I basically have been following, you know, Yalom type groups and then um, modern analytic group therapy is pretty consistent with Yalom, but a really big emphasis on how you, how are you feeling toward people in the group? How, how are you in feeling toward yourself in this group? What would you like to say to that person? What would be a helpful thing to say that, you know, it's very highly interactive, you know, yeah experiential and i thought man how is this going to work on zoom because we can't even tell who's looking at somebody right i mean right. member a, member a you know bob may be crying over here and amy may be looking away from them that would be incredibly important data and on zoom you can't even tell that so i was thinking this is not going to go well it was probably the best group i've ever had in my life i mean it was just wow. 
I mean, I mean, I, I think every single student 14, it was a big group too, 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, so we did a didactic part and then there's the experiential part and, um, you know, I prefer eight or nine, you know, uh, but yeah, 14 is a big group, but man, I'm telling you, I, I honestly believe that this was in an anonymous course evaluations that I think every person said it not only transformed how they approach group, but it truly transformed their lives. And right. so that, but again, you know, it's, I think it's because, uh, you know, I, I've, I've taught these group classes more than 30 times and, uh, I've learned, uh, well, one thing I do is just, I, I used to rush in and be more confrontational and it really, you know, I, I emphasize safety to the nth degree. And, um, hmm. you know, with doing that, I, 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 you know, I always invite people to share and take risks, but never anything that's vaguely forceful. And hmm. constantly when people feel safe, they're able to, you know, take, take right. risks. And then as soon as people take risks, other people follow. And it really, I mean, I was in tears several times, just so touched at the risk people take the, the courage to confront their, these are peers that they're going to have in other classes. So it's not like a totally. group, you know? And so yeah. I mean, the satisfaction, I, and I, I always said, you know, my, my expertise is really in like theory and all these things that I publish and do research on. And I've always gotten higher evaluations in my group classes, which I've never published <laughs> or done research on. And my wife actually, who, uh, used, you know, was a mental health counselor before she mm-hmm. became disabled, gave me the idea that I am either going to write about how I do these classes because, you know, Yalom says that these training groups are the most difficult groups he did basically. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he recommended that the professor who's grading shouldn't be in the group, but our structure doesn't really allow that. Sure. Either that or, I mean, again, I don't think this is going to sound arrogant. You know, I'm not really an arrogant person, mm-hmm. I hope, <laughs> but I certainly know that. I, I think that the last five or six groups I've led, I said, my God, if that had been videoed, this would be such a remarkable instructional tool. Mm. But uh, so I think I'm thinking I might try to find out if I can find people who've like taken the class before and create, you know, a new group, but, but it's not for the classes. I don't think you could video students in a class, but if it's not part of a class. So uh, anyway, I'm really, I, yes, I, I, I absolutely love group work. I think I may be a better group therapist than an individual therapist. Mm. I don't know. Do you see, obviously, you emphasize safety, which is, I think, universally both an in individual psychotherapy, couple psychotherapy, family, and group is, is central how to create that. And yet, at the same time, it's tough. I mean, if you're going to try to get group member A to say something to group member B that would be activating for the insecurities or injuries of B, um, are, are there, um, you know, the particular principles that come to mind uh, that you have found over the years that afford you? a way of creating a context that allows people to say things uh, and seem to be metabolized in ways that are productive as opposed to destructive? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's about as important question as you can get at. And I've kind of, and I, you know, I'm going to do my best to give you a real answer here as opposed to, well, it's an organic thing and it's a process that's, you know, I'll try not to be <laughs> so vague, but um, for one thing, you know, I do spend two weeks of readings and class discussion before we start our first group. So that's, you know, you know, you know, again, I, I am kind of a Yalom head, but mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> what the, the, actually the, one of the biggest predictors of a good group is how well the group is selected and prepared. Mm. Most, most clinics and things like this, they don't select members adequately. You know, a group can be helpful for anybody, whether you're psychotic or borderline, but is this member going to be beneficial and benefit from this particular group at this particular time? Right. But then once you've got your group selected, 
are, how well are the members prepared? Do they know what's expected of them and, and, you know, what they can expect of you? And then unlike most people, I have sheets, very explicit group norms. I know a lot, mm. one thing I'm totally opposed to is people who said, let's let the group create the norms for those people who, you know, are basically mm -hmm. the, the ground rules mm -hmm. uh, sure. that mm -hmm. if you follow these rules, you know, it promotes the likelihood that group will be effective. And, you know, most group members don't know what's going right. to be effective. And most of them think you're going to have all these structured activities, which is what most people do. But the, the, these groups that I'm talking about are here and now groups. They're relatively mm -hmm. structured where you help members talk about how they are experiencing themselves and others. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that's more threatening than talking about your heroin addiction or your totally. childhood to actually say, I'm angry at you. or I'm feeling judged by you, you know, immediately in the room. But this helps people a, you know, get reality checking. They may feel judged. And yet the other 11 people in the group say, I didn't hear any judgment. Well, wow. That's yep. pretty hard to, you know, let that go. Oh. But, um, so, you know, I talk about, uh, you know, I, you know, these, so these are counseling students, so they already have some skills as therapists, yeah. so, but you have to, you have to teach empathy. You have to teach what, what respect really is. And I'll give you an example of, um, okay. mm -hmm. how this happened in this, this last class, but, um, you know, really listen to a person and try, try to suspend judgment, you know, and then try to, uh, you know, empathize, you know, and if you don't understand something, you know, take a curious mindset and ask questions rather than, and you say you, and again, you know, you teach I statements so rather than saying you're judgmental, you say, I feel judged or whatever, yep, yep. but, but I'll, I'll give you an example of how uh, there was an African-American student there were two of them, but this one African-American student um, seemingly completely out of the blue, I mean, blew up. She, mm. I have students journal about their experience every night and I read those and she herself called it blackout, that she had a blackout. But again, what it, so, so one of the things that Davenlu uh, let people to know is the, the, the neurobiological pathways of anxiety. And when anxiety is in your striated muscles, those things that you can control, your mm -hmm. chest muscles and your hands, that, that means that anxiety is at a, a, a functional, healthy level. And when anxiety exceeds a threshold, it either goes into your smooth muscles, like GI disturbance, mm. or migraine headaches. You may have tunnel vision. You may have ringing in your ears. Mm or it can go into cognitive and perceptual disruption, like where people all of a sudden can't think clearly and speak mm. clearly, you know, and I've seen this time and time and time again. Anyway, she, clearly her anxiety was off the charts. She blew up at this other member and all of us were sitting there like, where did this come from? And again, you know, it's always, you know, very anxiety provoking when conflict happens. I mean, I didn't try to make conflict happen, but I know that, you know, you, uh, you know, they, they say that if you don't have conflict, you don't have a working group. Right. And, the presence of conflict is not unhealthy. It's how it's handled. But he, not only did she blow up, then I said, can we process this? And she refused to talk about it. Wow. So that's not a good sign. And then um, the member who was attacked was able to like enter some Dalai Lama state and be empathic and curious and say, I, I, I don't know what you did. It really hurt me. I, I'm angry, but I forgive you. And she said, I'm not, I'm not ready to forgive you I'm to receive your forgiveness. So it's like, Jesus, man, I said, we're, we're, you can't resolve conflict. If one of the people who is clearly the um, instigator Aggressor. Uh, is, isn't willing to talk about it, but I didn't press it. And I, and I just, we, we just kind of moved on and mm. I, I'm putting quotation, you know, I prayed that she would be willing to talk about it next week 
fortunately she was, and we resolved things beautifully. And she's, she, she came to an insight that what was triggered had, you know, to do with her own past trauma stuff. And she apologized profusely, but she, she subsequently called me the definition of multicultural competence, even though I, it never entered my mind, a cultural issue here. Mm. It just, so what, what I have learned is to truly, which goes contrary to Davenu, is that, you know, she, she drew a very clear boundary. I'm not willing to talk about this tonight. And I respected that, even though I felt it was harmful to the group to leave uh, with the conflict unresolved. Mm. But that led her to feel so safe with me that the sub, that was like the fifth session out of 12. Okay. The work that she did after that was mind boggling. And uh, so really you can, I mean, these things can sound so trite, but it's like respect and yeah, like respecting someone's boundaries. And that made her feel so safe. Uh, yeah. No, so, I, I, yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, and it's fundamentally central. I mean, for me, that's the whole, uh, the, the, indications of respect and safety are are what the heart relational system is fundamentally you know tracking and then and so what you're describing there and that's the skill of the um you know the nuance of the participating supervising leading or whatever you have to you have to understand what it is that I, in this instance i got to make a you know i have to read the system be able to manage the group even though we can't resolve this, but by doing that, and I'm not saying it was necessarily conscious, but the intuition then is um, I'm going to track where that person is, have empathy, let, hold the group as it unfolds, let the person do it. And if you manage that, then the skill to coordinate the various needs for respect and safety, you know, and that's why the leader is so uh, important for it. <laughs> I will say that I'm, I'm pretty confident that in my earlier years, I would have had the rational justification that the good of the group is more important than this one member. And so I would have challenged her more to open up, you know, and yet I'm pretty sure that in it, the long-term effect wouldn't have been as useful. And um, just so, so we're talking about safety and respect, which are basic, you know, humanistic qualities are, you know, the, I heart, have a hard time talking about them as techniques. Right. But I will say this one technique, I don't even know who I learned it from, but it, it's always worked for me. I've never, I've never gotten a different response. So she said, I'm not going to talk about it. I said, can I ask you one question? Clearly we're not going to respond uh, resolve this tonight, but is there at least a part of you that wants to resolve this and be in a better place with her? Mm. She goes, yeah. So it leaves the, it, yep. you know, so that little, you know, I, I'm not big on techniques, but there are certain times. No, it's just, yeah. phrases. That's, a be that's a beautiful, uh, you know, we teach uh, walk tells therapeutic communication, which I really like that book and yeah, awesome. ways in which you frame things and the meta messages that you afford people, how they hear it, giving people that opportunity to both be safe and in control, indicate that they want to move in a positive direction, but not force it in a particular way. The group then gets to see you. And so that's what a dynamic, you know, complex adaptive leader can do is like, hey, I can see the landscape here and I can actually have the capacity to manage the group and manage her and have available techniques that affords a little bit of diffusion, but also, you know, hold the integrity of the system and then come back to it when it's ready. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a, it's, I can, I can tell every time I talk to you about it, it's like how rich uh, your instruction is in that process. And that's really, that's really cool. Cause I think, I think groups are, and I, in fact, I feel a little jealous cause um, my, uh, the CI program that I'm a part of, we don't do nearly enough uh, good group work. So uh, mm -hmm. your students are lucky. <laughs> Thanks buddy.
So, um, all right. So that, those are definitely some of the things that I wanted to check off. Were the things that you uh, wanted to have us cover in relationship to this uh, you talking with Greg episode? I, I thought you were in control. No, but <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you and I have you know informally talked about the synergies between your unified model and integral, and I don't know if we want to riff a little on that or, you know, I mean, I, I probably should talk to you, have this on a phone call or whatever. But I'm just so curious. I can't wait to you know read your book and I know that you're, you're, cho you're chopping away and making progress there. And so I don't know anything about your work and how integral may play into that. Well, I mean, I, I will say this. Um, I have had more appreciation than ever for the, um, the epistemological framing. Uh, so, uh, and I realized that I see in the, so one of the things that I'm doing with my, so I'm finishing up, you know, problem psychology and, and its solution. That's what I want to, I get done. I keep chopping away and making it longer. So I keep staying at about 80% done, <laughs> but it's growing. You know? um, and, uh, but I'm also thinking systematically about sort of after this, I want to then really figure out how to teach people how to apply Utah and, and what does it mean? Okay. Uh, and uh, so one of the things that I think see, I see very much as congruent is I'm actually doing a fair amount with tree, coin, and garden these days. Okay. So the tree is the tree of knowledge system. All right. And that is the new scientific ontology, you know, um, and that scientific ontology, you know, well, there, right. There's the, the <laughs> there's the theory of knowledge tree in the garden, right. And the first branch of that thing is the tree and that's the coin. So, so the coin then is the upper left. All right. So the coin is the symbol for the interior experience of being. All right. Um, and now with my language around mind, so the center of that is your mind too, subjective conscious experience, okay? And one of the things that my book says is that what we need to do is we need to get clear about the general idea of consciousness, but then there's ideographic subjective conscious experience, ideographic meaning the specific element, which is really not science, that's not about the language of science, okay? That's the language of humanism. So. So there's the idea of what consciousness is and what the self is, and science will struggle with that, but it can frame that, but it frames the generalized architecture. Then there's Greg as a unique being, and then Andre as a unique being. That's what the coin represents, the unique being from the inside. And it's really key for us to get clear that there's a, several distinctions to be made here. So one is, hey, science is trying to see from the outside, it's trying to see what the inside looks like, its epistemology is anchored to an exterior okay, view and has to anchor everything then to behavior and functional process that it looks at and can measure. That's one issue, but that's different than the idiosyncratic position of from the inside. Okay? Um, so the coin captures this subjective ideographic and that's, uh, to me, I'm sort of saying, hey, we need that placeholder. Then the tree captures science in general and really key to the holistic view because the tree would be lower right, a systems view of the unfolding. And then this thing, the periodic table of behavior actually affords the opportunity to get the specific taxonomy of the objects. That's like upper right, okay? And so periodic table of behavior and tree of knowledge provides a map for the, those quadrants in a particular way, you know? And then the coin, uh, you know, I can just say, here's the unified theory will say, well, here's an ontology of mind too in general, 
But then the point represents the difference between Greg's vantage point and Andre's vantage point. And it turns out that's a very, very important distinction to have access to. Um, yeah. And I figured out a way to make some linkages there. And then the garden is then the invitation um, for how to think about sort of collective wisdom. And so it's a lower left sort of like ultimate network of narrative of what is and ought. So that constructed from a ground of psychotherapy that basically says, hey, how do people get trapped in maladaptive patterns and development? What is well-being? What is psychological mindfulness? I don't know. And what would be sort of the collective engagement around narrative and ethic that would afford us wise living? Um, so it's basically going to say, hey, there's ideographic self, there's science and collective wisdom. I yeah. can apply, and then I'm going to say, those are actually very different epistemologies. Epistemologies of ethics, epistemologies of subjectivity, epistemologies of objectivity at the it and its level. So that's a complete quadrant, yeah. right? Uh, and then it says, well, here's a naturalistic ontology that bounces between those with coherence. Because um, I'm, as you know, I critique Wilbur's uh, quadrants. When he talks about the exteriors being, in fact, he does it in the, uh, I think, Integral Spirituality book. In the appendix of Integral Spirituality, he explicitly says, well, the exteriors all matter. <laughs> so he defines yeah. the exteriors. It's not, you know, this conversation is exterior. But it's not matter, it's the culture, person, plane of existence. It's a fucking conversation and justification narrative that we are sharing at the level of behavior. That doesn't reduce the matter. The tree of knowledge gets that right, uh, Wilbur's, and, and it allows us then an ontology that cuts across the various epistemologies with a lot more coherence. That's what, so it's a quadrant quadratic that ties it together. Uh, so I think I can build off of some of Wilbur's quadrants critique some of what he says about ontology and then afford the tree, coin, and garden that bounces around the quadrants in a way that also gives us a coherent ontology. So, I love this. I love listening to you talk about it, man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what, that's what my, so once I, if I lay out the sort of the problem of psychology, then actually the art, the vision after this, then is sort of like, all right, so what's a practical philosophy for the 21st century? That's basically yeah. it. And, you know, when we build off, and I've been influenced by Roy Bashkar's critical realism. So really it's just sort of like, here's a, a new opportunity. If we, if we take critical realism and um, Wilbur and they point to really brilliant directions, I think, but none of them get the um, ontology of the mental. They don't really have a model for what the mental is. They don't get the joint points between life and mind and mind and culture, true yeah. knowledge nails those. And I've now then said, also, we got to get this epistemology issue. I mean, certainly Wilbur gets it, but the epistemology at the, okay, so there's a problem of consciousness in general, and then the problem of idiosyncratic subjectivity. Those are two different issues. And sort that shit out. And to me, it's like, fuck, man, I, I think uh, <laughs> it's like I got all the variables are lining up, you know, and it's pretty much, you know, obviously maybe, you know, maybe they're goddamn aliens and, and life after death and all that shit. I don't know. I'm agnostic. But at, at the, in terms of our endo-naturalistic kind of worldview of what we can empirically know, I think we can line up the variables a hell of a lot better. So that's what my hope is. Hey, man, speaking of those aliens, you need to get that book written quickly. So when they come down here, you say, here, man, here's our understanding. <laughs> <laughs> like, right, right. That's, uh, I think the timeline on alien contact may be speeding up a little bit. It's been certainly in the news as of interest, interesting shit, but I'm completely agnostic about that stuff uh, as well as, uh, you know, kind of like ultimate nature reality. We'll see. Yeah. Hmm.
What do you think about this? I mean, are you optimistic? Have you got a sense of the future? Or you think things will, you know, chug along pretty much the way they are? You think we're going to in, in danger of some serious dipping into chaos and destruction? I really don't feel informed enough about all the complexities involved to, you know, I don't know that anybody can be, but you know, I mean, I, I think I'm probably, you know, a little bit on the pessimistic side about things. And so I don't know, uh, just the, you know, the, the longstanding denial about climate change and then how slow we are to be willing to make changes to make that right. And that's just one of many problems, but that's a very big one, you know, man. And uh, I mean, the fact that we could be this technologically advanced and yet so poorly prepared for a, for a pandemic that really we got so lucky that this one wasn't more serious than it could have been. And I don't know, man, I don't say we clearly have a lot of technological knowledge or whatever, but we don't seem to be transforming that into wisdom and um, just taking what I would just call rational steps to be sustainable and, you know, as healthy as possible. No. So I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's kind of like we haven't hit rock bottom yet and that'll motivate us. I don't know, but right. I'm a little bit, and then you even mentioned, you know, <laughs> what about the, the solar flares? Or, I mean, there's so many things that I don't even know about that could probably take us out in nanotechnology. I don't, I don't know. It seems like we're more likely to screw yeah. things up than, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, certainly, I, I, I mean, I definitely, I, if I'm in, my mood will color, I mean, as always the case, mood will color what's accessible, but certainly the, the, the idea we're on a Titanic and the, and the icebergs, you know, pretty much uh, in, in sights and we're not going to be able to turn the ship feels, is, is certainly, I, I have that doomsday sense. Um, I also hope, I also feel at times, not because you project yourself onto the world all the time, but anyway, it's. Yeah. Well, dude, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, getting yeah. your story even more depth. I knew some about it, but I it really, I, I deeply appreciate your participation in the theory of knowledge as an executive uh, member. And I really do look forward to us, you know, building bridges. I, I, I do feel that there's something happening for these sort of meta systems and a more energy and, and a, a really effective weave. And, I, and our friendship and a exploration relationship to psychotherapy and unification, I think actually models uh, some bridging between two big systems in a way that maybe uh, other places will be building off of. And uh, so thank you for all your work and insight and sharing that with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And you know how much I love you, brother. And uh, I, I admire your mind so much. And I think uh, I just, like I said, I, I truly am so, uh, so much anticipation about reading your book. I mean, I know your, I know your work pretty well, but you know, not, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs. And so uh, I, I know it'll be a profoundly important contribution and I'm just happy to be a partner with you in this uh, journey, man. Oh man. Thanks so much. All righty, friend. Take care.